You may have noticed in your bulletin that there is a solitude retreat, RSVP. It's a one-day silence and solitude retreat. And I so want to encourage that you do whatever you might need to do to get yourself there. I wish we gave you a further notice. This is the best we can do. It's a little over a month. Um, couples, married couples, families might need to duke it out and say, your husband or your wife, I go to this one, you go to the next one. Do whatever you need to do, plan in advance. But boy, would really love to see you there. So we did this so that you can prayerfully commit to it. There's a $10 um, fee. Uh, and uh, as church, we've said that we don't want the money be a factor for you to not be able to go. So if finance is an issue, we will take care of it before you leave today. And I don't know if uh, Caitlin mentioned this, but fill this out, drop it off in the uh, information table, Newcomb Central, which is right outside. Would love, love, love to see a lot of you there. It's a good way for us to practice what it is that we've been talking about. We have been talking about silence and solitude, and uh, how important is it? Well, one of my favorite authors, Heroes Henry Nouwen, said that it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life without solitude. And we don't take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to Him. Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. And so for anybody that takes their spiritual life seriously, the need to set aside time to be with God and to listen to Him is critical. What is it? Well, solitude is the practice of being absent from people and things in order to attend to God. And silence is the practice of quieting every inner and outer voice to attend to God. And we've said that not only do you need to be alone, but we need to be quiet because silence deepens the discipline or the practice of solitude. Most religions in some form or another have silence as a part of their practice. But what is significant for us is that we do it before the Lord. Did you know that over 1,500 times in the Bible, 1,500 times the word listen or hear is found? Let me say that again. Over 1,500 times you'll find the words listen or hear in all of Scripture. Here's the tricky thing about not listening. You don't know that you're not listening. The tricky thing about not listening is that you don't know that you are not listening. This happens in my house all the time. Peter? Yeah? Did you hear anything I said? No, what'd you say? What, what was that? You don't know that you're not listening when you're not listening. If you know that you're not listening, it's a sign that you're listening. Why do I bring that up? Maybe God is speaking to you. 
you're not listening. Because you don't know you're not listening. Sit with that one for a bit, okay? Sit with that for a bit. Why is this so important? You might not know that you're not listening because you're not listening. But if we carved out time in which we are saying, I am listening, Lord. I am attentive to you. Uh, I think part of the reason why we've been saying we struggle with this is because we live in a noisy, wordy, peopled, performance-oriented, productive culture. That's one. But another reason we've said is it's because of what happens in silence and solitude. And I don't have time to review all of this, although we have lots of folks that are here for the first time. We said a couple of things that happens that I think we don't want to, and we push silence out to one is we become stripped of our false self. Do you know that much of who we are, much of who we are has been constructed as a response to wounds and pains we've received? Much of who you are and who I am is a result of the wounds and pains and how we have responded. And the thing is, we functioned in this self for so long that we don't even know. It's become normal. But what happens in silent solitude is that we become stripped of these external distractions that we use to not notice and hear what's true about us. For example, when you're you're not doing anything, you all of a sudden realize, wow, I'm really accustomed to doing stuff and being productive and achieving. Why is that? Well, that's where my sense of worth and identity comes from. When when I'm quiet and alone, I start feeling all these powerful emotions of anger and bitterness and resentment and hurt. Oh, who wants to feel that? So you become stripped of layers and layers of who we are and what we've constructed. And in silence and solitude, God begins to strip these layers of false self. The the, the parts of us that like to pretend to be someone we're not. Parts, all that becomes. and, And God, if we would allow him, goes into those spaces and begins to heal and redeem and restore. I'm telling you. This is not for the faint of heart, which is the reason why most of us don't want to do it. Secondly, um, we realize that we are not in control. We're not in control of a whole lot of things. And we recognize when we're alone and not doing anything, just how much we're addicted to control. I know we have a lot of parents here this morning. It's amazing how after I've become a parent, I don't want to just control my life. I want to control their lives and everybody else too. And I, this addiction to have to control, silence is a discipline of letting go. It's an act of surrender. It's an act of trust. You cannot fully engage in silence solitude unless you trust. God, are you going to take care of my family even though I'm not doing anything? Yeah, I got them. By the way, Peter, I take better care of them than you ever will. So chill out. God, can I trust you for my future to unfold without my participation. Do you know what you... <laughs> See, it sounds stupid when you actually hear yourself say that. You know, God, do you know better than I do what my future ought to be? Because, you know, just in case you miss it, I need to... It's an act of trust. Are you for me? 
Do you want good tensions for me? Silence and solitude. See, you are so unaccustomed to this that you literally can't sit still in church for like, you know how long I go. But you can't sit here without thinking about tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. That's a problem. That you can't just sit and be present with family, friends, and worship without your brain going 130 miles per hour. About That is what you face in silence and solitude. Which is why we're like, uh-uh. Let me be busy. Let me be distracted. And we miss out on an encounter with God. Ha. So we've been talking about Elijah. And we've been looking at 1 Kings 17 to 19. And Elijah is a great example for us because as James says, he was a man just like us. He was just like us in many, many ways. And we saw last week, we're going to see this week, he was prone to depression, suicidal thoughts. But God used this ordinary man in extraordinary ways for this reason. There is a pattern you see in his life. The pattern is he goes into the desert, silent solitude. He comes out of the desert into the world. He goes into the desert, silence and solitude, out of the desert, into the world. That's a pattern and a rhythm of Elijah's life that's exceptional. Oh, by the way, Jesus did the same thing, if you read the Gospels. Into the wilderness, silence and solitude with the Father, out into the world. You think you could carry out your mission that God has for you without going into the desert first? last week we saw 1 Kings 18. We don't have time to go into it. Somebody should make a movie out of it, right, Cece? Basically, here's the backdrop, and we're going to look at 1 Kings 19. The backdrop is years right around 800 B.C. King Ahab and Jezebel have instituted Baal, a pagan god worship, as state-sponsored sort of religion of Israel. Spiritually, the nation of Israel is in tatters. They're killing off the prophets, men of God. And the bounty on Elijah's head is the biggest bounty of them all. Elijah, of course, challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel, a showdown on Mount Carmel. This is first since 18. 450 of them. And God rains down fire. Prophets are killed. People say the Lord, the Lord, he is God. Elijah's at the apex of his career as a prophet. And then 1 Kings 19 happens. <laughs> now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid. And he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Elijah's servant leaves him. Not because he's rich. This isn't Elijah who has money servants because he's rich. And so he's saying, you know, don't need you anymore. The servant is his one-man staff. So when Elijah says to servant, you can go, Elijah's basically saying, I'm done with ministry. I'm walking away. 
He's saying, God, I'm done. Verse 4, he came to uh, a broom bush and sat under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah is in utter despair. He's completely disillusioned. Actually, he's suicidal. And I briefly mentioned last week, don't you love the integrity of the Bible to show us this? I love the integrity of the Bible to show us this, that the strongest Christians, people who are incredibly effective in ministry, powerfully used by God, they're not immune to despair. They're not immune to depression. They're not immune to suicidal thoughts. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to know this is the integrity of the Bible to go, real human beings. There might be somebody here, actually, who maybe recently thought about suicide. I don't have time to go long into this, but I've been a pastor for 25 plus years. And you better believe that there have been moments when I had to sit with someone who was going through not just depression, but suicidal thoughts. I just want to say two things and then I move on. Number one, will you talk about it with somebody? Don't stay in isolation. Let somebody know. And secondly, will you notice that Elijah, as despondent as he is, as disillusioned as he is, even in this condition, Elijah doesn't presume that he has the right to take his life. Even in this condition, Elijah doesn't assume that he has the right to take his He asks God to do it. The other thing I noticed about Elijah, and, and, and we briefly talked about this last week, and I, I, I was stuck on this because of the conversation afterwards. Elijah's dangerously tired. He's not just tired. He's dangerously tired. There's a good tired where it flows out of a good rhythm of work and rest, where work is done and you sense God's pleasure and, and you can, with temporary time of grief, get rooted. And then there's dangerously tired, chronic, months and months and months. You start to escape his behaviors. You don't feel anything and feel numb. You are actually busier than ever. The thing that's hindering some of us from intimacy with God is not some gross sin in our lives. The thing that's hindering some of us from an intimacy with God is that you are too tired and too exhausted to find God. Can I, am, I, am I talking to anybody this morning? This has come as a huge encouragement, hopefully challenge. The thing that is hindering some of us is not gross sin, mass rebellion. We are too tired and too exhausted. I want to hear God speak, Peter. You're too tired and too exhausted to hear God speak. Maybe for some of us, the most spiritual thing we can do is to get more rest so that we can be alert to God when we need to be alert. Maybe for some of you, the most 
be rich, I'm telling you, thing that you can do is to get more rest so that you can be spiritually alert to God when you need to be alert. Psalm 127.2, for God gives rest to those he loves. Are you living without limits? Are you living an unsustainable pace? (laughs) And for some of us, are you busier than God requires? Are you busy? If you have more to do in a day than you are capable of doing, God didn't give that to you. You gave that to me. If you have more to do in a day than you can do, you send that complaint and like, why so much? God didn't give that to you, child of God. You gave that to you. Are you busier than God requires? God doesn't waste any time trying to deal with Elijah intellectually, spiritually. That's the thing that I love about God. Because it wouldn't have done any good. God's smart like that, you know. Not like you and me. He knows. He's sitting at Elijah. He's going, okay. It's, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. Verse 5. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked, come on, somebody. And there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals. Remember what I said last week? God does what? God gives him an angel food cake. Okay, anyway. And a cold jar of water. Sorry. I should have known that I shouldn't have used that twice. I should, I should know when I, okay. And a cold jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Can, just notice a couple things. And for some of us, and I talked to a couple of people, I said, I was expecting people to go, yes, Jesus. And all I got was blank stares like, God did what? God did what? And I think for some of us, this was so unbelievable that God comes to Elijah and doesn't go, you need a sermon. You need a really good sermon about balance in your life. You need a really good sermon about trust. He don't do that. No lecture, no sermon. He cooks for him. He feeds the man. He says, go back to sleep. Literally, God goes, you just need to veg for a bit. Is that amazing to anybody else? God treats this despondent prophet so tenderly. See, there's there's this dangerous assumption in the church that if someone is in despair, disillusioned, that the problem must be spiritual. So the solution must be spiritual. So we do stupid things like, have you prayed in faith? Do you have any unconfessed sin? Have you claimed the promise? But just don't want to like punch him in the face. Like, I'm just tired. God doesn't do any of that. He just cooks, cares for him, and feeds him. He takes care of his physical needs. And he starts there. He starts there. Real quick, caring for your body is a spiritual act. Caring for your body is a spiritual act. Some of us act like Our spiritual journey and our physical body are two separate things. I have news for you. Your spiritual journey is taken inside of a body. I'm just going to play. You are more prone to temptation when you're tired. 
You are not a nice human being. Let me finish, Amber. <laughs> Can I finish, girl? You don't even know what I was going to say. I just said, you are not a nice human being. People are like, what the heck kind of a church is this? You are not, we are not nice human beings when we're exhausted. And most of all, you are not alert to God's voice and the promptings of the Spirit when you've gone beyond your boundaries. Do you really think that you could be spiritually healthy and mature while completely ignoring what you do physically? Even God doesn't think so. God takes care of him physically. And then he also takes care of him relationally, right? God just, just sits with Elijah. Sometimes what we need, we just need somebody to sit with us and just listen. And God does that. And then also God, Elijah is a spiritual being. So God will meet Elijah in a powerful encounter with God as we'll see later in this passage. But note, God cares for Elijah spiritually, physically, relationally. You and I, you and I, are spiritual, physical, relational beings. They all matter. For three weeks, I've been saying the following. I'm going to give it one last shot, and then I'm done. I've been saying for three weeks that you need to have God attend to you before you could attend to God's work. Right? For three weeks, I've been saying this. And I know that half of you are like, yes, and the other half are like, whatever. You cannot attend to God's work unless you allow God to attend to you. Let me say it one last way, and then I need to move on. Before you can serve God, you need to let God serve you. I know, some of you are like, that's heresy. That just doesn't sound right. No, that's the gospel. Can I show you? Sure. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but what? To serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Does others just include poor, the homeless, the marginalized, the weak, you know, the people that you like to help? Is the others include you and me? Answer? Yeah. yeah. So maybe there's something to be said about God serving you. Oh, why? Uh, Acts chapter 17 verse 24. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Oh. So maybe God is perfect. God is whole. God is complete. God doesn't like anything. Maybe God doesn't need us. Maybe the kingdom doesn't need you. And if we don't get this, you will use your service to earn your way into the kingdom. The essence of Christianity begins with Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. How? By giving his life as a ransom for many. The gospel says, I don't need you, but check this out. But I want you. I don't even know what to do with that one. The gospel says, I don't need you. I am perfectly complete, not lacking anything. Thank you very much, I'm God. 
But I want you. And because I want you, I will do everything necessary for us to have a relationship. And you earn this right standing, right acceptance with God, not by you working for God, but by you embracing his work for you on the cross. And here's the thing. You ready? It is those who have allowed Jesus to serve them that make the best servants out in the world. Are you with me? Do you know why, Sissy? Because if you do not allow Jesus to serve you, you're going to be out there doing what? It's my identity. This is where I get my worth. I don't love you for the sake of loving you. It's loving myself. It's some lack in me. No, no, no. When Jesus fills you, serves you, nourishes you, takes care of you, loves on you, you go out and say, I serve not because I have to, but check this out, but because I get to. I don't have to love my wife. I get to love my fine wife. You hear what I'm saying? There's a difference between saying, I have to work for God. God goes, no, you don't. I don't need you. He's filled me. I get to. I get to. I get to. You get to. Let Jesus serve you, not just at the point of salvation, but every day of your life. Let him feed you. Let him serve you. Let him nourish you. Amber, are you, are you tracking with me? Let him serve you so you could be the best servants. And then lastly, check this verse out. If you're still not convinced. First Peter 4.11, whoever serves should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. You know what this says? It says whoever does the work gets the glory. But if you do the work on your strength, your ability, you get the glory. But if you do it out of his strength and his ability, hello anybody, he gets the glory. If you do not allow God to serve you, you get the glory. If you allow him to serve you, he gets the glory. You know what? At the end of the day, what do you and I have to give to people? All these ministries that we're doing, they're amazing. But at the end of the day, the thing that we have to give to people is God. But if you and I do not have God, because we are too busy to be with God, what do we have to offer? Verse 8, strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? By the way, whenever God asks you a question, it's not to get information from you. (laughs) What's he doing here, Peter? I don't know. Really? I was hoping you'd tell me, what are you doing here? When God asks you a question, it's never to gain information. It's to what? Give you information. So, here's me with God. Peter, what are you doing here? What are you doing? What am I doing? Or, what am I when I'm not doing? What am I when I'm not being productive? What am I when I allow the world to pass me by? What are you doing here, Elijah? Why is Elijah going to Mount Horeb? Amber, do you know why he's going to Mount Horeb? There's another name for this mountain. You know what the other name is? Mount Sinai. Where's Mount Sinai? 
Mount Sinai is the place God appears to Moses in a burning bush. Mount Sinai is the place where God enters into a covenant with his people, gives them the Ten Commandments. Mount Sinai is the place that you would run to if you wanted to encounter God. And check this out. This, 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 this rocked my world this week. It says when he gets to Mount Sinai, he goes into a cave. But that's an NIV translation. But it's a much more generic word. It literally means a cleft. There was another time. When somebody came up to Mount Sinai and said, I want to see your glory. I want to see what you're like. Who are you? And God said, I want you to get into a cleft. And I'll pass by. But you can't see my front side because if you do, you die. So I'll let you see my hind side. Moses. And many scholars say that that same cleft is the same cleft that Elijah finds himself in. Uh. Why is this significant? Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you're not doing well spiritually? What do you do when you're disillusioned and in despair? What do you do when you've let God down and will out of the sound? What do you do when you know you've done things that you know you shouldn't have done? We run, but do we ever run to God? What do we do? We run what? Say it with me. We run from God. Most of us, when we're disillusioned, despair, not doing well spiritually, we don't run to the cleft and say, God, I need you. We run from, I can't tell you how many times in my life as a pastor, I've heard people say the following things. When I'm doing better, Pastor Peter, what? I'll come back to church. When I have kind of fixed this thing that I've messed up, then I'll come and join community. When I've, you know, gotten myself together, that's when I'll... Why do we do that? Part of the reason why we do that is because it is hard for us to believe that there is a place where we could come as we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and know that we will be handled with care, compassion, and not judgment. It's hard for us to believe that there is a place that we could go as we are with our questions, with our doubts, with our skepticism, with our wounds, and trust and know that we will not be judged or rejected, but that we will be tended to. And the good news is Elijah, something in him says, I am not going to run from, that's what I want to do, but I will run towards, I'm going to run to. He doesn't sanitize himself. Look at his words. He doesn't go, so dear Lord, thy prophet. He says what? Just kill me. I don't want to do this anymore. Anybody said that, by the way? How many times have you and I said, I don't want to do this anymore? He comes raw, honest, unsanitized with this house. And by the way, we'll talk about this a little bit next week. He has a distorted perspective. He is burned out and he is blaming everybody else. But he comes as he is. He comes as he is, as he really is. Check this out. For the mere possibility of encountering the living God. What about you? What about you? What about me? See, I thought about this this weekend. I, I'm just, I, know, I know that 
certain times in sermon, I'm speaking to specific groups of people. I'm, I'm speaking to specific groups of people. There are some of us here that are saying, Peter, I don't want to run from God. I want to run to God. I want to run to God like Elijah. But what if I run to God and God doesn't meet me there? Show of hands. How many of us have had that fear one time or another? What if God doesn't meet me there? What? He showed up for Moses and Elijah. What if I run to God and nothing happens? The silence and solitude too thing? You know, the March 25th retreat? What if I show up and nothing happens? That fear is real. And I'll tell you why that fear is real. You ready? I'm going to speak for myself. Because I'm realizing in silent solitude that my need to control also extends to my need to control God. My need to control also extends to how I want God to respond to me. How I want God to show up. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And it's not long before you're going to realize, good news, you can't control God. You and I can't predict God. You and I can't, ultimately, we come to grips with the CSO said that we're dealing with an untamed God who is the way he is, not what we want him to be. So what do we do with this fear? What do we do with this fear? I'll tell you exactly what we do with fear. And for some of us, I pray this week that this will be the spiritual breakthrough for you. What do we do with this fear? We do with this fear what we do with every single relationship when we want intimacy. And that is the free fall of saying, I make myself vulnerable and available to you and I will wait. There's nothing that I could control you and how I want you to react to me. But this relationship and you are so worth it to me that I will make myself available and vulnerable to you. No, you might not respond, but I will make myself available and I will wait for you. That is the scariest thing. This is the reason why some of you, singles, you walking around, you'll never know intimacy. Why? Because you'll never get to that place of going, I will make myself fully available and vulnerable to you. And you will never be known. And if you're never fully known, you'll never be fully loved. Did you think it might be possible that you're doing this with God? Is it possible that you have not yet come to the place of, I will make myself completely and totally available and vulnerable to you? I can't control you. I can't predict how you're going to respond. But I'm letting go in full surrender. Now, do you want to hear some great news? Do you know why you and I could do that confidently? Because here's what Scripture says about our God. First John, this, uh, CC, First John 4.19, if we love God, it's because he first loved us. Do you know what this means? Oh. What this means is that if you even have a hint and a desire of, uh, I think I need God, 
We're just responding to a God who has been pursuing us and after us for ages and ages before we were even aware of our desire. If we love God, it's because he's been loving us and pursuing us. If we search for God, it's because he's been searching after us. If we desire God, we're just responding to a God who desired you from the moment he thought of you. Is this good news to anybody? So why in the world would we be afraid of, should I let myself go the moment you go? Should I let myself go? God's going, I've been desiring you, loving you, pursuing you for all of eternity. Let go. (laughs) And we're still like, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I could trust him. I don't know if I... I want to say one last time. The moment you go, I need God, you're just responding to a God who has been pursuing you your entire life. Only to finish, verse 9. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, and we'll talk more about this next week. Anybody struggle with blaming behavior? Everybody should raise their hands right about now. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart. And shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came, literal in Hebrew, The sound of sheer silence. NIV says gentle whisper, misleading. In Hebrew, it literally says, and God came in the sound of and in the midst of sheer silence, Elijah is transformed. He is radically changed. The point of this is not God doesn't show up in earthquakes. The point of this is not God doesn't show up in the wind. The point is not God doesn't show up in fire. God did all those things in the Old Testament. The point is Elijah is expecting God to show up in those ways. And God goes, uh-uh. Do you know what the principle is? We'll unpack more next week. God will often show up in ways that we do not expect. We want God to show up through successes. God will often show up through your failures. I'm going to say that again. 
you want God to show up in successes? Let me just ask, how many of you discovered that intimate relationship with God through pain, suffering, and failure? And not time? Raise your hands. Oh, oh, oh. We want God to show up in comfort and convenience. And God says, I might show up through suffering, trial, and hardship. Maybe the way that God gets us into his arms is through the desert and the wilderness. Are you listening to me? some of us totally missing God coming to us because we have set in our minds this is how you come. This is how you show up. And for some of us what this literally means is this. We need to create an entirely new category in our minds about how we experience and encounter God and that is that God comes to us in the sound of sheer silence. See for some of us we grew up Here's how God comes to us. It's when the preacher gets up there and he screams his face at me and I get an insight that says, aha, and I go home. My life has changed. For some of us, Bible study. For some of us, it's worship and presence of God. For some of us, it's the miraculous, a word of prophecy. Those are all the ways in which God, yes, does show up. But for many of us, an entire category that's been totally missing about how we experience God is Sheer silence. What happens in sheer silence? One, Elijah gets clarity and direction about his future and what he has to do. And we'll talk about that next week. By the way, Elijah gains clarity not when he was seeking it. He's not seeking direction. He, not, he gains clarity in the sound of sheer silence when he just says, I'm here. I'm here. But the second thing, and the most powerful thing, that Elijah experiences. See, see, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to preach this. Because literally, what God does is he grants Elijah the most powerful experience of God's loving presence in silence. In silence, and I could only use so many words, Elijah is drenched with the presence of God. In silence, Elijah is soaked in the presence of God. Verse 12, when it says, he went out into the cave and put his cloak over him, that's a sign of awe and reverence. In other words, he is standing on the edge of the cave and he is soaked and overwhelmed by the very presence of the living God. And you know what happens to him in that presence? He comes to know in the depths of his being this God who is for him, with him, and in him. He comes to know experientially not just that he is loved when he's on a mountaintop raining fire, but when he is alone, exhausted, and disillusioned. There is a world of difference between reading about somebody and becoming intimate friends with them. Spouses, there's a world of difference between saying, I love you, and making love to your spouse. There's a world of difference between saying, I I trust you, and actually entrusting that which is most important to you, to that person. That kind of knowing that the Bible calls knowledge of the Lord, that's what Elijah experiences. Inside.
See, I said this two weeks ago, and you missed me. Sometimes the most important things we need to know will not be discovered at the thinking level. Sometimes the most important things that we need to know will be heard at the listening level. That's why the Bible says in Psalm 46, be still, say it with me, and what? And know that I am God. There is a kind of knowing that will never come unless you are silent. Do you know God like that? Do you know God like that? Pray with me. Church family. You could keep your eyes closed because this will help you focus. It does to me. So you're not distracted. Because if you're here for the first time, what we've been doing is for three weeks in a row in this sermon series, we've actually ended the service in a time of silence, okay? In solitude. Even though we're in the midst of group. I've actually, I've been gifting you at the end of the service to essentially for a short time practice. And so right now, you know, to the best of your ability, get comfortable, put, put whatever you're holding, no, no notebook, no pens, put whatever you're holding on your hands because you need your hands free because I need some of you to gently open your hands as you put it on your lap or if you feel led, lift it up. But, but clear distractions physically away and, and, and sit comfortably, try and sit comfortably, okay, try and sit comfortably. Put away whatever distractions in your hands, okay? Sit comfortably. Then if it helps through breathing, just in and out. With the prayer, breathing in. God, I I need you. And breathe out. I can't. Breathe in, but you can. Breathe out. I can't. Breathe in, but you can. Breathe. Maybe for some of us, the thing that will help us focus is simple prayers like, Jesus, 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 or Lord, have mercy on me. Or come, Holy Spirit. Whatever. Prayer. And, and literally for five minutes, for five minutes, I'm going, to, I'm going to have all of us just be silent and still before the Lord. Okay? That's it, just five minutes. It's a way for us to get a taste of what it is I'm asking you to do every day. So, 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 so right now, just as you are, as you are, and this is a prayer that I prayed last week. Just, just close your eyes. I'm going to pray this prayer. And then when I'm done with this prayer, we're just going to literally have total silence and total quiet for five minutes. I'll be the timekeeper. Don't need to look at your watch. Don't need to look at your watch. So five minutes after this prayer, and in the midst of it, in the midst of it, if you can, in your mind, envision just as Elijah runs to God and hides in the cleft of the rock that you'd find yourself hidden under the shadow of his mighty wing where you'll find rest. Dear God, 
speak gently in my silence. When the loud outer noises of my surroundings and the loud inner noises of my fears keep pulling me away from you, help me to trust that you are still there even when I am unable to hear you. Give me ears to listen to your small, soft voice saying, Come unto me, child. And anyone who is overburdened, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble of heart. Father, let that loving voice, let that loving voice be my guide. In Jesus' name.